The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. And when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him, 
Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. You'll have to bear with me. I uh, have a bit of a cough. My throat gets dry a little bit, so if I get in a coughing fit in the middle of this, just forgive me. I've got water here, so that's going to be my bailout. Um, there might be nothing better than the feeling of mercy. If you've ever been driving down the road and you see in your rearview mirror flashing lights and you look down at your speedometer and you know you've broken the speed limit, you're caught red-handed, and you pull over, if you've ever known that feeling of, oh goodness, what have I done? Oh goodness, this ticket is going to be huge. I've been going 70 and a 30 and I didn't even know it. No, I'm just kidding. That wasn't... My wife was doing that. I'm just... Uh, <laughs> But then to have the police officer come up to the window and say, I'm just giving you a warning today. You know the relief that you feel when you know you've been caught red-handed and he, give, he gets your, your, give, lets you go scot-free. Or, or perhaps when you were little and you know that you've been caught doing something you weren't supposed to do or you were told specifically not to do and your dad, instead of spanking you, says, don't do this again. That never happened to me, just for the record. <laughs> he would always say, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. And that's not true, by the way. That is a lie. <laughs> Parents tell their kids. <laughs> Perhaps you know what it's like to experience mercy. A time when you deserve to be punished, but instead... You were set free. The mercy that you received is really only celebrated, if you really think about it, the mercy that you received is only really celebrated when you understand fully that you deserved the punishment. If you don't think you deserved it, mercy should be given to you. But once you understand that you deserve the punishment, mercy is heightened. Mercy is appreciated. Our passage this morning seems on the surface to be really harsh. In fact, it's a strange way to end a book, isn't it? You're not going to see any of your fairy tales that you watch in the movies or read in books that are going to end with, and a plague broke out across the kingdom as God was punishing His people for their sin. The end. It always ends, they lived happily ever after. And perhaps you might expect, maybe in 2 Samuel 24, that we get to the end of this and we're like, and the kingdom rejoiced under David, their king, and all lived happily ever after. And that is not what we get here. And on the surface, what you're seeing here looks really harsh and, and hard to read and just maybe uncomfortable at times. But I think, like many of the passages that we've uncovered in 1 and 2 Samuel, when we understand what is, being, what is happening here, what is being said, 
in this passage, it goes from something that on the surface feels harsh to actually being a picture of an incredible act of mercy. And, and, and on the surface, it might not feel that way, but as we dig deeper, I think it will. We're seeing the last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, and it's the close of this story. And it seems like a strange place, as I said, to end, but I think it's actually the most fitting. The passage opens in this pretty strange way. If you look there in verse 1, it opens with this statement by the author. It says again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So let's be clear, first of all, in just that first verse, what's being said, and also the things that we don't know, because there's a lot of things that we don't know about this passage. But the first thing I think that is clear is that the anger of the Lord is directed at whom? It's against, he says, Israel. Now, what is it against Israel for? Why is the Lord angry, in other words, with Israel? And that is something that we don't entirely know. Certainly, he has a number of reasons that he could be, but we don't know the exact reason here. It could be any number of things. From Remember, they, they previously selected Absalom over David, and there was never any record after that that God had punished them for their act of treason or anything like that. And so perhaps this is uh, what is happening as a result of that. We don't know. Ultimately, we're not told, only that he is angry with the nation. But then there's this second part of the statement that is far more concerning as you read it. I think that might uh, raise some questions in your mind as you read it. As a result of his anger against Israel, what does it say he did? He incited David against Israel saying, go, number Israel and Judah. This is often a point of confusion for people because God is here said to be the one who is inciting David against Israel and telling him to go and number. We also have this same parallel account in another book called First Chronicles, and it should appear on the screen behind me. First Chronicles 21.1, it says this, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So is it God, as Second Samuel says, is it God that incited David? Or is it, as First Chronicles says, Satan that incited David? And the answer is, yes. It's both. Now, we can't pretend in any way to have all the answers to everything that, every question that might arise in a passage like this. All the reasons why God does the things that He does, we don't know the extent of all of them for sure. But there are a few things that we can say from the Bible without reservation. First, all that God does, He does for good. I think that is unequivocally true in all of the Scriptures. Now, a plague on the nation of Israel is difficult to understand. I grant that. But, I think what we'll see by the end of the passage, that even the plague that he brings to Israel is done ultimately for the good of the nation 
and not ultimately for its harm. It's hard in the midst of it, I grant you, to see how could this possibly be for their good. But I think at the end, we hopefully will see that it is for their good. Second thing that I think we can say, for sure, based on Scripture and what we've already read, all of Satan's intentions are against God's people. God's, all, all the things that God does are for His people, all the things that Satan does are against God's people. If you look at the words that are stated just in these two verses, in 1 Chronicles and here in our passage in 2 Samuel, we can see that on display. In the first, in our passage, it says God's anger is kindled against Israel, and what does he do? He incites David against Israel. Whereas in 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says Satan himself stood against Israel. God, in other words, is not opposed to his people. He is working in and amongst his people through David the king to enact his plans. Whereas Satan himself, the accuser, which is what his name literally means, stands opposed to God's people now and always, back then and even today. So finally then, what we can say definitively about this passage, whether we can answer every question or not, is that God's incitement of David against Israel is necessarily for their good because that's what God does. All that he does is for their good. Satan's incitement is for their destruction. God's is for their good. And that's the difference. So in any and every circumstance, there is presented to anyone. There is God's sovereign plan for which he intends good. And there is Satan's plan for which he intends evil. That helps us to understand various other passages in Scripture where like Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And he tells them in Egypt, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God's intention was still to sell him into slavery and to bring him down into Egypt, but it was for the salvation of the nation of Israel. Whereas the brother's intention in the midst of this whole plan was only ever evil. The same would be true of God and Satan here in this depiction. So we can't lose track of this point because it helps us to understand the mercy of God that's on display in this text. But you understand that as David presents this plan to Joab, Joab is given the instruction to go count the people, and Joab is initially against it. And listen, as we've seen in First and Second Samuel, if Joab is against it, if he's the one that says, hey boss, I feel a little uneasy about this, it must be really bad. Because Joab doesn't seem to have a conscience at all. And yet he's standing here saying, ah, I know, so let's, let's think about this again. Nevertheless, David doesn't listen. He insists that the people be counted, and he wins the argument with Joab. But the question then is, why is it sinful to count the people? And there are probably a couple of possibilities. Again, this is one that we don't exactly know the answer to, but we get a few hints. In another passage in 1 Chronicles, the author tells us in 1 Chronicles 27, 23 to 24, it should show up behind me. David did not count those below 20 years of age, for the Lord had promised to make Israel as many as the stars of heaven. 
Joab, the son of Zeruiah, began to count, but did not finish. Yet wrath came upon Israel for this, and the number was not entered in the chronicles of King David. (coughs) So at least part of the sin that's on display here in counting the people is that at some point, the younger people in the generation were counted. Now there's reference to the promise that God made to Abraham, I'm going to make you as many as the stars in the sky and things like this, and the sand on the seashore. And the counting of the younger generations seems to be some sort of act of faithlessness where they are going through going, is God actually being faithful to his promise? Now, what I take this to mean is that David didn't finish counting all the people. The instruction was still from David to count, but he didn't finish counting the younger generation. It's possible that he's also trying to get a grip on what are the numbers of our military that are going to be coming in the subsequent years, as if to cast doubt again on God's provision and protection. But it's also possible that Joab just kind of struck out on his own and decided to count them uh, on his own. And for this, uh, God is incensed, and it's a sin to count the people. But there's also potentially another reason. The law actually lays this out in Exodus 30, verses 11 and 12. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. So potentially, David is counting the people, and he's not also taking an offering to give from, uh, to, from the people to the Lord uh, in the temple, but is either keeping money for himself or more likely not even taking an offering at all, which would be why the plague comes on them at the end. But whatever the reason, the sin is likely traced back to a lack of trust that God is going to provide or that he's true to the promises that he made to Abraham all those many years ago. But the point is that the people are counted. And in the counting of the people, David has sinned, and his sin is the occasion for which God is going to judge the nation of Israel for the sins that they've already committed. So David has committed sins, and that is one reason why God is going to enter into the picture and judge the nation as a whole for the sins they've all committed. So now David is going to get conviction for his sin, and he's going to incur the Lord's judgment. Look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. Notice that no prophet comes to him. No one tells him his fault, as we've seen them do in the past. No voice from the heavens opens up and tells him, David, you have sinned. It is David's own heart that judges his actions. And David realizes the grievousness of his sin. Now, as we've read First and Second Samuel, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, David is not always a good guy. In fact... David can be a downright scoundrel sometimes, and he does things that are unequivocally wrong. There's really no apologies for them. The Bible doesn't even make any apologies for them. They're wrong. And yet, 
in selecting David all the way back in 1 Samuel, the Lord, it says, sought out a man after his own heart. So he defines David in a way that the story seems to complicate. How can he be a man after God's own heart when, he, when he's done these kinds of things? Not even just counting the people. That's between him and the Lord. I, I mean, back in chapter 11 with Bathsheba. This is crazy. How can he be a man after God's own heart? But what you have to realize, and as you read the Bible enough, you'll, you'll come to see, it, it's not presenting to you a hall of heroes. It's not presenting to you people who, in all of their life choices, are demonstrating for you something to emulate. This is not a pattern necessarily to follow. These are people who fail spectacularly in ways that may be even unimaginable to you. And I've had many conversations through First and Second Samuel with some of you in here who go, how can David be a king? And how can he be after God's own heart? How can he be so this and that and do these kinds of things? This final chapter, as bleak as it is, is reiterating this central theme in the book. That for us to have hearts that follow after God doesn't actually mean that we're perfect, but that we respond to correction with repentance. And this is what we see is true of David and not true of Saul or his predecessors. That David, when he's corrected in sin, responds in repentance and faith and does whatever is necessary. Now, for all of David's faults and his foibles, which he has many, he has proven himself to be repentant over sin, not only when he's corrected by others, like the prophet Nathan or Gad, but also when he's completely alone, as is the case here. He stands alone, and yet he comes to the Lord in repentance because his heart struck him. So God sends the prophet Gad to David in verse 12. As David responds to the Lord and he says, I've sinned, so please forgive me. Gad comes to David at the behest of God and he says this in verse 12. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord gives him a choice of his punishment. Behind door number one is three years of famine. Behind door number two is to flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you. And behind door number three is three days of pestilence in the land. And I'm sure David is hoping that behind door number four is a goat tied to a tire, right? Anybody remember the show? Who picked the Anyway, never mind. Okay. <coughs> Some references are so old, even the older people don't get them. I mean, come on. Uh, so it seems that instead of uh, picking a particular door, David just eliminates 
being chased by his enemies. Just don't give me that one. You can choose door number one or three, whatever, it's up to the Lord, but just don't give me number two because I would rather fall into the hand of the Lord, which is the essential lens that we look through for the rest of this passage. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So he's trusting that if the Lord is delivering the blow, He will be merciful. But man, in his sinful state, is going to crush me. So he's harsh and cruel. So instead, let me into the hands of the Lord that he may deal kindly with me. So it seems that he just leaves the Lord with choices one or three. And so the Lord chooses door number three, the plague. And he strikes many in Israel dead. It says from Dan to Beersheba, which is just another way of saying from north to south. And he strikes 70,000 men dead. Now, we might initially respond to something like that by thinking, that doesn't sound very merciful. 70,000 men. 70,000 people dying from a plague. We call that mercy? We might even think to ourselves, well, David did count the people, I guess. So there was a sin against the Lord that he committed. But David didn't die as a result of the plague. David, it seems, didn't even get the plague. So if we get distracted in, well, David sinned, and so the plague is justified, then we get lost in this trap of going, well, how is killing 70,000 people that are not David justice for the sin that David committed. But we then would lose the point of the passage. Remember back in verse 1 what it told us. Look with me back there at verse 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against whom? Israel. And he incited David against them saying, Go number Israel and Judah. The point of this whole thing of this entire passage, is that God's wrath is burning against all of His people. Not just for David's sin. It's burning against all of Israel. And apparently, David isn't even aware that God is upset with His people or that He's angered with His people or that His people have sinned because as he says in verse 17, but these sheep, what have they done? Which we might be asking too, but there is an answer. God is angered with His people because of their sin. He says, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But in actuality, God is punishing Israel and David at the same time. So David is watching this plague ravage his people, and his sin was the occasion for God's wrath. But the people are suffering a plague as punishment for their sin, sin that they committed. So both are suffering for sins that they committed. So the point is that God's wrath is kindled against all of His people, and when God's wrath is kindled against His people, they die. So by the time we get to this point in the passage, what we should be fearing is the wrath of God, and that the inevitable result of God's wrath is that people die. Now, passages 
like these essentially take a wrecking ball to the theology of many. There's so many aspects of this passage in particular that are difficult. There's God's incitement of David, as we've said. There's the Lord striking 70,000 men dead by plague. Those things are hard to wrestle with. The wrath of God here on display is hard to wrap our minds around. It's difficult to understand. But this story is more shocking to you if you grew up coloring all the animals in on Noah's Ark and painting smiles on their faces. Believe it or not, those two are connected. Noah's Ark is perhaps the most horrific story of God's judgment in the Old Testament. It's His judgment across the entire earth. But often, our children hear the story of Noah's Ark as Noah's floating zoo. And they spend their time coloring the spots on the giraffe and no time coloring in the dead bodies floating around the ark. That's a less appealing children's story, right? But in reality, if we think about Noah's Ark in its context, and even just on the surface of the story, it's awful. It's not a kid's story at all. It's horrible. When we make a habit of stripping the Bible of every occasion of God's wrath, what we end up doing is creating this version of God in our mind that looks kind of similar to what the Bible is telling us, but in the end is not very much. And instead of being God that the Bible is presenting to us, we create in our minds this little g God. And that God is, is, is all about peace and love. He's happy-go-lucky. He's always about rainbows and blessings. And He's the kind of God that just wants you to be happy. The problem with that notion are the actual words in the Bible. So our kids color in these animals on the ark because we reason, well, they're too young for all of that wrath stuff. And then when they get older, they say, well, if God just exists to make me happy, then He can make me happy on Sunday morning out on a boat on the lake just as easily as He can make me happy in a building with other Christians. Why would I go there? If His goal is just to make me happy, He can do that anywhere I am. So why would I stick around church? Or they grow up hearing God exists just to make you happy, and they come to like this God, and then, God forbid, they actually open up the Bible one day and start reading, and they go, wait, they told me that God just wants to make me happy. And now I'm reading about Noah's Ark, and I'm reading about 2 Samuel 24, and God inciting David against Israel, and Punishing them with a, with a plague that kills 70,000 people. This is not the God that they told me He was. I was sold a bill of goods. So now what am I left with? I don't like this God. 
So then, when we build a culture like that, where we've stripped the pages of Scripture and all of the hymn books and everything like that of the wrath of God, then when someone like Jonathan Edwards comes along and preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God and says things like this, His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment." Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you was suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you hadn't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking His pure eyes by your faithful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop into hell. So when he comes and says that, after we've scrubbed the pages of the wrath of God, you can imagine that it's received with shock and dismay. What is the wrath of God like? That depiction of God that Jonathan Edwards gives doesn't exactly correspond to Noah's floating zoo, does it? It's not at all the same God, even. But it's an appropriate way to describe an entire world around the ark being drowned in the judgment of God because of their sin. We're so uncomfortable sitting with the reality of the wrath of God that we attempt to erase it entirely from our Bibles. And we want to explain the text in some other way. Well, maybe there's a typo or something in this thing. But this passage is simple. God is angry with His people of Israel over their sin. David's sin is an occasion for His judgment. And for the willful disobedience of Israel and David, God punishes both of them. In this case, a plague kills 70,000 of them. But what happens if we want to scrub the pages of Scripture from that depiction of God's wrath? then we also lose the stunning depiction of His mercy that follows after it. Yes, there's a point where the angel of the Lord has His hand stretched out across the land and God says, okay, that's enough. Yes, that's merciful. In the midst of the plague, to stay the hand of the angel of the Lord. He tells the angel of the Lord to stop. But that's not even the beginning of the display of His mercy in this passage Look at what we learn in verse 16. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana 
the Jebusite. So now, following after that, Gad tells David in verse 18, Go, raise an altar to the Lord at the same threshing floor where God's judgment was enacted on the nation of Israel. Go to that place where the angel of the Lord exercised God's wrath on his people and build an altar there and sacrifice to the Lord. So after he goes to the threshing floor and he meets Arana and he gives, uh, he, they start haggling over the price. Arana wants to give David the threshing floor for free or perhaps, you know, let him use it or something like that. And David eventually insists on purchasing the threshing floor for the entire nation. David eventually secures the threshing floor of Arana. And then in verse 25 it says this, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, you think, why is that an act of mercy? The threshing floor of Arana is a significant place in the nation of Israel. It's the place where David's son, Solomon, is going to come back to now that the nation owns it and build a temple there. We see that in 2 Chronicles 3.1. It says this, and Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So it's significant because this becomes the place where God's temple is then to be built. But it's got more significance than that. This right here, is the culmination of God's plan for ages, in fact, nearly a thousand years. If you go back to Genesis 22, 2, God is speaking to Abraham, who has now a son named Isaac. And he said, in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which... I shall tell you. So the book of 2 Samuel ends with David offering a sacrifice to escape the heavy hand of God's wrath after purchasing the land where the angel of the Lord had struck the nation of Israel. So he purchased the land where the temple would eventually be built, where sacrifices would eventually be carried out where year in and year out, God's hand of judgment would be stayed against His people as the blood of bulls and goats are sacrificed. You understand that God's judgment here is a way not only to punish His people for their sin and to show them the grievousness of sin and the seriousness of sin, but also as a way of securing that place in the land to build his temple so that he might not be angry with his people anymore. The passage that starts with the wrath of God being demonstrated toward his people ends with God providing a place for his people to meet with him so that his wrath might be appeased. In other words, the place of God's wrath becomes the place of his mercy. And that's what this passage is setting us up to understand. God wants more than anything for His wrath to be satisfied. 
But that was just the beginning of God's acts of mercy toward his people, as we're going to see in a few weeks in our study of the book of Hebrews. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Author of Hebrews is going to tell us that in chapter 10. God instead provided His own Son, Jesus Christ, to take the full force of God's wrath toward me for my sin. But what happens then, if we wipe the pages clean of the wrath of God, then we come to the story of Jesus dying on the cross for me, and it makes no sense. It's one gift amongst many. But you see, Jonathan Edwards doesn't stop in sinners of the hands of an angry God with that depiction of God's wrath. What's there and available to you is what comes to the stunning speed of rescue is God's gracious provision in the death of Christ. The only thing that spares you from that level of God's wrath is the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ and His ultimate resurrection. It's there that we find the perfect sacrifice of God taking my place and absorbing all the wrath that God had reserved for me. So now if I understand Noah's Ark, or I understand this plague, or I understand many of the other stories in Scripture that depict God's wrath, what I then see in the story of Christ dying for me is an amazing act of mercy that I don't deserve. What I begin to see as I look through the pages of First and Second Samuel is not a king that, in spite of being a man after God's own heart, sinned grievously. Instead, I see a king who is a lot like me. And, and, and given his position and his authority and no one around him to tell him no and perhaps not even being spanked since he was 14 and always being told yes and being given everything that he could possibly be given, if that was me and I found myself up on that rooftop, what would I do? The heart that is inside David is, you know what, the same heart that's inside me and you you're far more like the people in Scripture than you care to admit. But the reality is, when we fully appreciate God's wrath toward us for our sin, when we appreciate that we are rightfully condemned, not because of any one thing we've done, but because we are children of Adam and we are prone to his heart, just like the people that came before us and just like the people that will come after us. Once we realize that we were rightly under the condemnation of God, then we can see God's mercy on full display in the cross of Christ. Now the cross is the reality of my sin. This is God's justice, but it's also His mercy. Why is it His mercy? Because when I look at the cross, that's not me on the cross. Even though it should be. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. And I want you to listen to me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're in a dangerous place. A spider 
dangling over the pit of hell, only to be kept alive at this very moment by His grace. Echoing the words of Jonathan Edwards, it's a small miracle that you haven't at this very moment fallen into the pit of hell. And there's no sugarcoating it. So what do you do? At this moment, confess your sin to God right now. You don't have to come to me. You go straight to God through Christ. I'm not a priest. You confess your sin to Him. You confess your trust that Jesus Christ, the one that died and rose from the dead, is Lord of heaven and earth, and He's Lord of your life. Commit your life hereafter to following Him. At that point, let us know. We want to talk to you, and we want to disciple you. We want to ensure that as a member of this church and the global body of Christ, that we're helping you grow in Christ. But it follows repentance. Now, if you're following Christ, don't scrub the pages of the Bible of the wrath of God. Let them stand. They're ugly. They're hard. They're difficult passages to read sometimes. But let them stand and read them in full. And let them cause you even to tremble at the weight of the wrath of God. Because only then can you truly appreciate the mercy of God to you. That only by God's mercy and His grace are you not right now dangling over the pit of hell. It's only because you're in His palm that you're not in danger of eternal punishment. So the mercy of God is only celebrated when you understand, just like being caught by the police, that you're in full deserving, uh, you're fully deserving of the punishment. His wrath, in other words, was set for you, but it fell on Christ instead. That is something to celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, for all of its many eccentricities, for all of the things that it says, all of the things that are hard to read. And we pray that you would give us help as we unpack it. Pray for the hearts of those whom you know in here are lost, are without Christ and are in danger of hell. I pray that even right now, you might instruct them by your word, by my words, to come before you in humble honesty, confessing their sin to you, professing faith in the one true resurrected Christ who died for them they might be saved. I pray that you would give them a boldness to speak of their conversion to Christ, of the faith that they have, and the desire to follow him in baptism and discipleship from here on out. 
We pray for them. The gospel that they've heard would not be snatched away from them as they leave, but would be sure and secured by your Spirit. We pray that you would do that now in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.